This week we read The Adventure of the Empty House. Where for the first time we heard Sherlock utter his famous catchphrase, Sniper, no sniping! Afoot, all my buddies, welcome back to the first and final and only Podblem, the Sherlock Holmes read-through podcast you know and love, and if we've done our jobs right, fear at least a little bit. Uh, it is me, Old C.W. Hills, the angel of the bottomless steak fries, and joining me here is the Bartitsu barista, Nicholas Cohen. Bartitsu. Bartitsu. Bar- is that what the what the martial art was called? Bartitsu. One of those. I I think. I, I yeah. I don't know. There's so many. You know. I just. I've only done karate. I'm fairly certain Doyle <laughs> made that up. I'm pretty sure he did too, as he does with many things. Um. Let's do it. This story ruled. Yeah. This story was way better than the final problem. It was great. Like, there, by a lot. There were snipers and tigers, and it was it was great. Yeah, I thought you were making like a wizard. I thought I was too for a second. I was was like, and and bears, Nicholas, and bears. Where were they? I don't know. Where's this joke going, idiot? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That's my that's my self talk. No, it's not. It is hostile on your side of the screen. I I try to be really nice to myself most of the time, but I'm telling you, man, today's your cheat day. It's fine. It's my cheat day. Yeah, having a having a rock star before breakfast. It's great. Woof. (laughs) All right, uh, but enough about your personal life. So, it's 1894, Nicholas, and London is abuzz with the murder of the Honorable Ronald Adair. Yes, um, so the story opens technically, it's, okay, so it's been ten years since, ten actual historical years since the final problem and three years in canon. So Holmes has been dead. Correct. Holmes has been dead for three years and Watson's obviously very sad. And also on top of Watson being sad and his best friend being dead, his wife also dies during this time. Um, oh shit. What? It doesn't say, yeah, this is the point in canon canonically where Mary Morrison dies. Cause, uh, at, at a point in the story, uh, I think there, it's not very, it's very vague. So like, I don't blame you for missing it. But during, um, during a conversation, well, I'll, I'll bring it up later, but, um, okay. So, yeah, I did not catch that. Yeah, so Watson is, it, it's during the, uh, scene in Watson's office, so remind me to come back to it. But, um, Wowzers. so yeah, so Watson is very sad, very alone, but he is, he's still, because of his long association with Sherlock Holmes, he's, he's keeping up with the crime world and following, um, following things that are going on. He, it's kind of, I'm not sure if he's actually like physically showing up on, on the scene and helping with the police or anything like that, but he might be. Yeah, it says he's, he's tried to solve a few by use of the Holmes method. Yeah, yeah. To, uh, to quote, indifferent success, Mm. which is, yeah, so very sad. I know. He's trying to, he's trying to be his own best friend and it's, it's just not working. Right. Different adaptations have, um, showed or like implied that Watson does, uh, actually try to, appear at certain i think in the granada series he's helping he is helping with this this case of ronald adair and he Mm. he still talks to lestrade and is still kind of um a part of it so i i kind of like that i i think that that's probably what was going on uh i don't think he would completely withdraw he would just be too used to it at this point and he would need something that would still connect him to Holmes because he misses him so much um right and there's only so much cocaine you can do by yourself. Exactly. So, um, so yeah, he, he's hearing of the, the Ronald Adair case. It's the big 
talk of the town right now. Uh, basically what happened was this guy, Ronald Adair, is the son of a, um, the second son of a governor of one of the, Aust- one of the Australian colonies. Son of a governor. Um, and his mother is, uh, coming, they're, they're, they're staying in, they came back to London and they're staying there because, uh, Mrs. Ronald Adair is getting cataract surgery, which is apparently a thing Correct. they could do in Victorian times. Um, Absolutely. She needs to have her waterfall corrected. So, what? That's <laughs> <laughs> what, that's what the word cataract means. It means waterfall. Oh, cause it looks like you get. Oh, seriously? Yeah, cause you, cause you get waterfalls over your eyes. Oh, that's what I the, didn't know that. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. Well, wait a minute. That means there's another thematic waterfall connection. There is. Wow. These are all like oh. much more poetically entwined that he was yeah on top of his game he knew what he was doing. <laughs> so, who knew who knew doyle knew what he was doing wow. um so not him not him <laughs> yeah so um got our doyle dragon all right <laughs> so he wouldn't download a doyle dragon <laughs> <sighs> that killed me dude it was really good the way, what just the way you said I, it just murdered me i already forgot what that was in reference to what I was talking about some some Dungeons and Dragons PDFs. Oh right, yeah. On my, <laughs> and you know what? Lest the gentle listener worry for my personal liberty, I did technically download those Dungeons and Dragons PDFs illegally, but they were from out of print books that I couldn't have purchased firsthand if I'd wanted to. There's no way for me to get that money to TSR Industries because it doesn't fucking exist anymore. Despite, it's Wizards of the Coast. Despite now. the image that we project to the public we are in fact very law-abiding people we really are very... both by nature and by fear <laughs> well for me it's totally fear if i could just do whatever i want i would absolutely be breaking the law every That's day fair. but um no <laughs> okay so no anyway i said i was deleting the dungeons and dragons pdf and you said you wouldn't download a dungeon there we... you wouldn't download a dragon <laughs> it was the way you said it I'd be very happy who do you think i am of course i would i would download 20 dragons if i <laughs> <laughs> Alright. <laughs> so, so yeah, this guy's been real murdered. Uh, he, uh, so young Ronald Adair, I don't know how young he actually is, but Ronald Adair, he's just some rich guy. He's relatively respectable, doesn't really have too many enemies as far as we know. Um, he plays a lot of cards with his friends, uh, at sure. their rich guy club, and he was playing cards one night. He's not too risky, he usually plays it pretty safe, um, but uh he he knows when to hold him yeah he he's he's knows when to fold him yeah no particular he didn't suffer any particular loss or gain a whole ton of money at this in this particular night he goes home um to the he well, he's, I, yeah i do i do have to know yes he had spent he had played cards twice he was a member of three different card playing clubs oh yeah so this was a played, big thing yeah Exactly. So he had played after dinner on his death day, mm-hmm. and also that afternoon with Messrs. Mr. Murray, Sir John Hardy, and Colonel Moran. And yes, he had lost a bit, mm-hmm. but uh, it was it was he's a rich aristocratic. It was literal pocket change, right? Yeah, it did, you know, it was like couldn't affect a family's rent for a month, right? Yes, yeah. But it is important who he was playing with, and he gets home. Uh, his mother and sister are out. Uh, for is his sister? Yeah, they're yeah. they're they're out with uh, staying with family for the evening. So he's home alone. Uh, he he goes into his he goes into the room and uh, shuts the door behind him. They get home later, find the door to the room he was in locked, and they they start getting worried. Eventually, they break, they 
they get in there, they break the door down, and they find him dead on the floor with a gun. He's very dead. Extremely yeah. dead. Gunshot wound uh, through the head. And it was especially nasty because the bullet used was a... Uh, like a soft nose bullet, which is the kind that uh, once it hits you, it just expands. Yep. So you're just like you're you're fucked at that point. Yeah, you're really yeah yeah. There's no gun out. So, um, but there was no weapon present. No weapon present, and again, the door was locked, so it's not like anyone yeah. would have come in, done it, and left. Uh, exactly. the window was opened by a servant because there were, there was a fire started in there and it was kind of smoky. So they opened the window. So Correct. there was that fact. So, so obviously we are presented. Yeah. yeah. He got shot. Someone shot him through the window somehow. Presumably. Um, presumably. And, but it, it's kind of like, it's the whole mystery aspect of it is the door was locked. And also the, the, whoever shot him had to be a ridiculously good shot. Like, yeah, right. it is technically possible, but like they would have to be expert marksman level. Right. So why locked door? How abscond through window? If 20 foot drop onto bed of undisturbed crocuses, Right. how can a Watson get answers? <laughs> the flower bed would have betrayed anyone who tried to climb up the window. Mm-hmm. You would see the, the footprints and the steppers much like in uh, the excellent film knives out that I finally got to watch and enjoy. So good. <laughs> a hell of a lot. It was so much fun. Oh, it was very good. Mm-hmm. I liked it a lot. I text Dylan and uh, I said, one, this movie is very good. Two, fucking rich people do. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, and he said, that's it. That's the movie. Just those two statements on a loop. That's it. Yep. No, I literally just, I specifically saw that movie because Dylan pointed me at it. Um, yeah, same. I saw like one ad for it and I was like, all right, that was kind of fun, but I didn't really, I was like, not well, actually. they had no idea how to advertise it, did they? They didn't. Well, you I didn't, didn't even know it was a comedy. a comedy. Yeah. I you do. thought it was just like a serious murder mystery thing and it was not a it was not murder all. mystery thing. no <laughs> um, but yeah no it was i such a good movie yeah if you get the chance definitely see knives out it is Go amazing it. um so yeah so that's all that's all going yeah. on and them's the facts that now it is up to watson to deduce them from them as best he can yep and the deduction does not go well enterprise no <laughs> um so he uh let me see does it uh let me see. Because what I have next is he's going, uh, he's going to the, he's like making his way to the street where, uh, yeah. so the address where he, where the murdered man was, uh, staying and where he died, uh, is 427 Park Lane. Uh, during the event, right, right when this case is coming out, Watson's like, alright, I'm gonna, uh, try my hand at figuring some of this out. He makes his way right. down to the address. And while he's there, there's like a little group of people right outside the residence because they know that the murder's gone down. Someone's outside giving his opinion on what he thinks happened. I think it's like, I think it's another detective. I don't think it's, is it someone connected with the police or is it just? It sounded to me like the gentleman, uh, dressed like Dracula from the retired colorist. Who knows? (laughs) Well, yeah, because it talked about how he had colored glasses and how he was very finely dressed. Oh yeah, maybe it was him. Shoot. It could have been that dude. I don't know. But yeah, he's, he's pontificating and making observations to a gaggle of Googlers who are milling about the scene. Yeah. And Watson listens to him for a little bit and he's like, this doesn't sound like, this doesn't really sound right. Um, but I'm too Watson to dispute it. And then he yeah. turns around and 
he he bumps into this old man who uh has a stack of books like he assumes he's an old book collector and knocks sure. the books down and Lawson's like oh shit I'm sorry he bah! he tries to he tries to apologize and he give he picks up the books gives them back and tries to apologize but the old man just turns around really quickly and it's just like you know ah whatever and scoodles off and scoodles off and and Lawson's like okay that that was not very you know, productive, but whatever. He goes back to his house, and I think like an hour later or something, pretty shortly after that, the, uh, uh, someone, housekeeper or servant, whoever, um, uh, comes into Watson's office and is like, someone's here to see you, and it's the old bookseller, mm-hmm. and, uh, Watson's like, dude, what are you doing here? And the bookseller's like, hey, I just wanted to say sorry for being rude to you, uh, you tried to help me pick up my books. Anyway, by the way, would you like to buy? Here's what I've got. And Watson's like, oh shoot, here we go. And so, so he's, uh, do you want to, do you want to get this part? Oh yeah. yeah. So, 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 so the old man says, well, I see on yonder shelf there that you have got some available real estate. And I think just five or six of my tomes could probably, ah, surprise Watson. Yeah. It's me, Holmes. Yeah. Surprise <laughs> floor. It's Watson's face. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, Reveal, so the bookseller tells Watson to look at the, look at his bookshelf. Watson turns his look at the, and looks at the bookshelf. He turns back and Sherlock Holmes is standing in front of him and Watson immediately faints at the sight of yep. this for the first and last time in his life, as he claims. HP And, um, he comes to, to Holmes being like, I am so sorry. You know what? Now that I think about it, I probably shouldn't have introduced myself like that. <laughs> Holy shit. My bad, dude. It's so funny because it's like, He's so clear. Holmes' need for drama always oh, yeah. outranks anything else. Like, it's oh, always yeah. priority number one. His own well-being and that of it others, is, the right. integrity of the crime scene. Exactly. Yeah. All of it. So this is just, like, in my opinion, one of the like the most on-brand way he could have pot. He's not going to just yeah. show up at Watson's house dressed as him. And, like, no, no of course not. Um, he didn't do that to Mrs. Hudson, though. No mercy on her. He just showed up at Baker Street one day. No. And it's like, hey, Mrs. Hudson, I can only imagine. He describes it as, like, he, he did show, he tells Watson later he showed up to Mrs. Hudson as well. Yep. And I only mention this because this is some of the most, like, screen time or page time that Mrs. Hudson ever gets. So yes. I want to give her that, that credit that she's due. Um, so he shows, he describes showing up at Baker Street and throwing Mrs. Hudson into violent hysterics. I can only yep. imagine how this scene went and it involves a frying pan to Holmes's face and yep. it, it had to be great. So, um, so anyway, it had to be great. Well, <laughs> yeah. and, and that's, that really is in keeping that like the drama is all important, but where he chooses to spend the drama is also important <laughs> because I can absolutely see him just walking into Baker Street and being like, Hudders, where's my mail? I told you to leave it right here three years ago. absolutely just keep up hudders come on (laughs) he powders his face so he's like extra pale that morning what do i pay you for (laughs) um yeah so so watson faints holmes arrives him um and He he and he wakes up to find quote my collar ends undone and a tingling aftertaste of brandy upon my lips the the quickest way to revive someone after a faint obviously uh yeah. so so yeah no this is very the this scene is so awesome uh watson immediately is just like what is going you have to tell me what like what happened like just start explaining right now like so just just go and uh um, holmes you're back my front <laughs> right and uh 
So, Dumb. yeah, so Holmes is like, are you, are you sure you're ready for this? We've, and also, by the way, just letting you know, we, I know I just like introduced myself very suddenly back into your life when you thought I was dead, but we have, we have business to do tonight, so maybe we should wait till after that. And Wanda's like, are you freaking kidding me? Like, tell me right uh, now. No. Like, no, absolutely yeah, not. You're gonna, citizen. like, sit down and tell me, tell me what happened. Um, so yeah. Holmes does, he goes on this whole, uh, he goes on an explanation. Uh, this is just a montage of Holmes's globe trotting yeah. adventures after this. And this, this is <laughs> not into it. Not huh? that, <laughs> it's not that I don't like this part of the story. Yeah. I don't like what this part of the story does to the final problem hmm. because the end of that story was mysterious and spooky and was always meant to be just kind of this big question mark. But Holmes reveals that like, at that fateful day at Reichenbach Falls, Moriarty ran toward him. Holmes stepped aside and let him run off a cliff like Wiley e. Coyote Basically, to his death. Basically, yeah, it's a very... and that's that's it. The conclusion of the greatest intellectual and criminal rivalry in London's history was just like whoop, right? Yeah, <laughs> they just run right off, hovered in the air for it a few minutes. Wildly anticlimactic yeah. and extremely disappointing. Well, and more than that, I just have to imagine Holmes was like. I was scared of that guy. Right? <laughs> just, just watching him, like, bounce off a rock into the huh. water, like, hmm. All right. <laughs> Doesn't seem so scary now. But Well. <laughs> yeah. It's so, it's just the massive, like, because Holmes is, like, obviously he's a, he's a Victorian-era superhero, basically. He's got the brains, right. but he also has pretty significant, he's described as having pretty significant, like, physical abilities, too. He's, like, he can yeah. be fast if he needs to, he can be strong if he needs to, etc. Moriarty doesn't really get any of that. It's kind of just implied that everyone does whatever Moriarty needs to do for him. Right. So he doesn't really... The, just the idea of him going up against Holmes, it's kind of logical that Holmes would just immediately kick his ass, because Moriarty's yeah. all brains, but he has none of the physical ability, as far as we know. Um, well, I could, I could see, and, and many adaptations do feature Moriarty having, like, a technological edge, like in yeah. the, um, in the Robert Downey Jr. film, Secret he's got gun. one of those, yeah, he's <laughs> got one of those, like, grrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrr
Doyle's goal of Holmes is dead, there's no way he could have gotten out of this is great because there's no way he could have got his way out of this. He did a good job the first time. But actually, actually, you can actually scale this wall if you're just really, really good. If you have geckos. And so... Uh, so yeah, Holmes is like, yeah, I, I had to climb the wall. It was super hard. I almost died several times. And also, at the same time, Moran was up at the top of the waterfall throwing rocks at me. <laughs> Literally throwing uh-huh. rocks. Just like in Zelda. Down. Yeah, you're um, trying to climb the cliff. So, uh, so Moriarty's up there using rock throw, and Holmes is trying to scale this cliff, and I think, and I guess he just does it? There is quite a bit of suspension of disbelief here. <laughs> yeah. During this whole explanation and but eventually Holmes is able to get up the cliff enough uh he 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 gets away from the waterfall. He runs or not runs, but like he he travels 10 hours through the night to the next town, yep. effectively evading Moran. How, like why Moran wouldn't have been able to just follow him, I don't know. But he he manages to escape because because then no rest of the story right. that that Doyle is getting paid for. Yeah, he he manages to escape Moran and then just kind of globe trots for a while. Uh, he yeah. goes to a bunch of different countries. He he travels for a while in disguise uh, in the guise of a uh, Norwegian called Sigerson, who's an explorer, and he goes to Tibet. He goes to Mecca. He goes to France. And he was about to return to London anyway when he heard about this here Moida and found himself intrigued. Quote, I came over at once to London, called in my own person at Baker Street, and threw Mrs. Hudson into violent hysterics, and found that Mycroft had preserved my rooms and papers exactly as they had always been. So, Mrs. Hudson has been receiving presumably the same rent to just right. not have a tenant anymore. So this was probably a pretty good couple of years I wonder, for others. I wonder if she had any clue or suspicion that perhaps Holmes was, or even just like a hope in the back of her mind Mm -hmm. where like, she was like, you know, she, she was being paid to upkeep the, or keep the rooms up. And so it's like, why would maybe just, maybe she was thinking of it as just out of respect and she's making money. So it doesn't really matter that she can't replace her tenant or I don't know, maybe she had, an idea that he might or something? I don't know. It, Could be. Well, and here's here's the thing. Watson accepts Holmes' death both in the face of the evidence presented, which was designed to be convincing mm-hmm. because it was supposed to be true and accurate yeah. at the time. Yeah. Uh, and also because it is just in Watson's nature uh, to be credulous, sort of. Mm-hmm. Because he's the audience surrogate, it's, it is his purpose to, to believe and to accept what he sees and filter through that. Yeah. But, like, Mrs. Hudson has been with Holmes for a much longer time. Right. And I really like the idea of Watson going over there and being like, you know, Mrs. Hudson, we we really need to make arrangements and maybe you should see for some new tenants. And, she, and she's over there just like, oh, he's been dead before, dear. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <It's> just... <laughs> this isn't even the first time, yeah. He'll exactly. Don't worry about it. And Watson's just like, oh, boy. Yeah. I could totally see that, too. And, it, and it's also... um. Dis, uh, this is just like kind of a minor note, but it's just, it, uh, Holmes says that, uh, uh, Mycroft was giving him the, sending him the money to be able to right. do all of this. So Mycroft was in on it from the very beginning. Um, right. he, but he was the only one who knew. He was the only one he who knew. He was the only, the only risk Holmes could take. Right. Because as far as Moriarty's gang, who had survived to some extent, was concerned, Holmes was very dead and it was, it was very important that he stay considered dead. Right. And Mycroft, A, being, as powerful as he is, B, not really doing anything other than 
going to his house and going to his club and exactly. being as smart or Holmes describes him as even smarter than Holmes, it makes sense that oh, yeah. that would be the person he trusts. So if, if Moriarty is what if Holmes but crime, Mycroft is what if Moriarty but lazy. Yeah, yeah, literally. <laughs> yeah. Or I guess yes. what if Holmes but lazy, because Moriarty really doesn't, or Mar- Mycroft doesn't really have any kind of evil. He's just, he's just lazy, but also smart. Yeah. Yeah, so. He seems to know what's up, just sits around reading. My, he's got the right Mycroft idea. Mycroft is such a cool character, and I wish he got a little more attention in the stories, because I, the, and the relationship with him and Holmes is really like, it's so amicable in, in the canon at least. Uh, mm. they, they like to, uh, in, I know in BBC Sherlock, and I think in the Robert Downey Jr. ones too, they're kind of like, oh, but what if sibling rivalry? Haha, like kind of just for like extra drama or whatever. But yeah, in the books, they're like BFFs and they just joke with each other and are kind of like, it, it's really, so I don't know why a lot of adaptations take that angle i don't maybe probably just for i don't know extra drama well i i actually really like the bbc mycroft mm-hmm. um, oh he's great yeah it's just the guy who is that mark gatness is that it his is name? yeah yeah he's awesome and the way because the the thing the thing about holmes is that in order for him to be an acceptable and believable character his capability and his skill and his capacity for intelligence and deduction all of this have to be balanced out by something mm-hmm. And usually that balance is in the form of, you know, interpersonal awkwardness or lack of social capability yeah. or, or what have you. So having, having Mycroft, who is essentially as intelligent or more intelligent, but tempered with whatever it is that Holmes lacks, because especially in the BBC one, Mycroft is like, yeah, that's great. You're physically running down one criminal in the street and catching him. That's cool. I've got an entire country to do that with. Yeah, yeah. So if you could just stop <laughs> breaking my shit like every day, yeah, that would be great. And even in the Robert Downey Jr. ones, um, Mycroft, portrayed by Stephen Fry, is like this borderline. I, I think the impression that that's supposed to give is because, like, the only thing I remember about him because he only shows up in the sequel. Oh, oh. There's um, also the fact. Sorry to interrupt, but there's also the fact no. that uh, Mycroft. Uh, his his job is some position in government. We don't really know what it is, exactly. but he's involved in the government somehow. Correct. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think that's I think that's true across adaptations, yeah. isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. For the and most even part, the yeah. it, the the Stephen Fry one, who only shows up in Game of Shadows, which man, that is not the stronger of those two movies. <laughs> no. <laughs> he's he's walking around he's walking around naked and the you know the the female protagonist character they, they've got their tagging along whose name escapes me um because they foisted her into the story to further break up the uh holmes and watson or you know romantic possibility <laughs> like he's literally walking around his house naked and says something about how oh you know you're a woman yes well, that's not too objectionable at all is it <laughs> just like it's and the the implication i think there is that like it's kind of going in the opposite direction as the BBC Mycroft because, like, the Robert Downey Jr. Holmes is much more socially competent and he's got problems, mm-hmm. but he he is also more or less in control of himself. And that version of Mycroft is is depicted as, like, so staggeringly intelligent that he's just like, there's no physical reason for me to wear clothes. Right, yeah. This is, over, this is ridiculous. <laughs> he, he, just, he doesn't have to follow the rules of society because he's too busy he's thinking. Like, he's, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he's, like, too smart to function, almost. Kind of like an Einstein um, type of really just very, very brilliant, but also very eccentric. Exactly, yeah. with a really narrowed, narrowed scope and focus. Mm. 
yeah, anyway. Yeah. So Mycroft uh, was the one handling his affairs in this meanwhile. And that brings us uh, pretty much up to present. Holmes refuses to tell Watson anymore until half past nine. And then <laughs> it's half past nine. Doyle does that all the time. He's like, I can, we can't do anything for three more hours. Three hours later, it's just, I don't right, know. Just I, I didn't, <laughs> conveniently. Yeah, no, so... Yeah. Uh, so- Holmes, Holmes recounts, uh, Watson demands that, uh, while they're waiting for whatever they're going to do that evening, Watson doesn't know yet. It's a surprise. Um, <laughs> and, uh, Holmes gives the whole account of what he was doing, uh, during the three years, uh, of his absence and assumed a death. I think he, I don't think he does, he, he never catches Watson up on what they're Not going really. to do. They get in a, a nope. yeah, the time, the time comes when they're supposed to, it's 9 p.m. when they're, it's 9 p.m. Yeah, it's 9 p.m. Holmes is like, all right, time to go do what we're going to do. And Watson's like, what is that? And Holmes is like, don't worry about it. I'll tell you later. I'll yeah. tell you later. And then they're doing it. And Watson's like, okay, so what do we do? Holmes is like, just wait. Just wait. I'll tell you after. Um, It'll be fine. Which I think in this particular instance is just like, it's funny that Holmes keeps Watson in some, in a lot of instances, it does make sense because they are trying to like, in some instances, it's like the case is going so fast that he literally doesn't have time to catch Watson up. Right. But in this instance, he totally has time. He just yeah. doesn't. And they have to wait until nine o'clock. <laughs> and, yeah. the, and also the thing they're doing is they have to be sneaky about it. And he just kind of expects Watson to know this. I don't know. It just seems like a risk at this point. But yeah. Uh, anyway, it's for the drama. It's all about drama. It's fine. Holmes is at four for a time. Holmes Watch has, me for the key changes. Come this on. This story has Holmes has had three years where he doesn't get to be dramatic in front of his friends. So he's got a lot That's to a make point. up for. Um, That's a point. He does. So they get, so Watson Holmes is like, all right, time to go. They take a cab to, um, Watson thinks they're going back to Baker street, but Holmes leads them through a bunch of winding alleyways, back streets, etc. Very sneaky. They make it to, um, this empty, this house, they they go in. It's it's empty. There's no no furniture, nothing in there. Nope. Uh, they get. It is pitch dark. They are likely to be eaten by a group. Pitch dark. Very creepy. They head up to the top of the stairs, and you can look out the window and across the street. You can see Baker Street, and yep. Holmes uh, trying to catch Watson off guard once again. Already still hasn't told them what's going on. Probably I, I understand now. It's for this particular reason of surprising Watson with the whole bust thing. He just wanted to be cool for Watson. Yep. Yeah, okay, yeah, that makes sense. That's Presentation is everything. Also, if something is worth doing, with, <laughs> it's worth doing with style. Also very on brand. Okay. Yep. Uh, there's two things that take priority with Sherlock Holmes. Drama and impressing Watson. <laughs> and, yes. and if those two can overlap, all the better. All the better. So this is both. They he, He's like, hey, Watson. Hey, Watson, look out the window. Tell me what you see through, through the window at Baker Street. And Watson looks... And he looks at Holmes and he looks again and he's like, hold on a second. Because, um, what appears to be Sherlock Holmes sitting at Baker Street, he, you can see him silhouetted and, yep. uh, and Holmes, uh, uh, and Watson's like, but if you're there and you're here, then who, and so Holmes, uh, says that he, he had a bust made, uh, of himself to put yep. in the window of Baker Street so that people, so that, uh, he could give the impression that he was there when he was really elsewhere. And, Correct. Yeah. He can he can control where he is seen and believed to be mm-hmm. by the forces that are out to destroy him. And so there is a, a very convincing silhouette in Jan Windel mm-hmm. uh, for any passersby to say, oh, look, Sherlock Holmes is there. A technique seen in the classic film Holmes Alone. <laughs> and Holmes Alone, too. Uh, so... The empty, Holmes Lost Alone, in- too. The Empty House. So, yes. Uh, he paid a visit to his bust guy, Buster. 
Um, in order to bamboozle the remnants of the Mori army who are still stalking him. So Holmes tells Watson that Moriarty's general, uh, this Colonel Moran, is on their trail tonight, but quite unaware that they are after him. So the hunter has become the huntee, mm-hmm. as is so often the case. They sit there and do some people watching for hours. Hours pass by. Holmes gets fidgety, which is probably the cocaine withdrawal talking, <laughs> until Watson goes, Blah! Holmes! Your shadow head moved! Well, of course it did. Hutters is manipulating it with a series of pulleys. <laughs> because he'd, he'd, he'd also watched the bits in Holmes Alone where you had the, you know, the, the cardboard cut out going it's back and forth. It's a whole mechanism up there across in the, the window. Rooms, yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It's very elaborate with very precise counterweights. Now, so he's, yeah, uh, so he's employed Mrs. Hudson to, uh, at, at certain time intervals, approach yeah. the silhouette from an angle where she would not be seen, but the silhouette Correct. would move. So it would look like Holmes. And at first yeah. she protested, but he had her check the contract, and it turns out that diversion and subterfuge do in fact fall under her duties as landlady. You really gotta read the fine print all the time. Especially when yep. your tenant is Sherlock Holmes. So. Yeah. So. Yeah. A door opens in the house that they're in. The house that they are in. The house in which they are currently lying in wait. Mm-hmm. And some sort of shadowy creepenfoos slinks in, uh, apparently unaware of Holmes and Watson's presence, and he proceeds to creep on up to exactly where they are to open the window that faces Baker Street to assemble some sort of firearm, take deadly aim, and commit busticide. Yeah. Yeah, so Moran has... um. Uh, Holmes mentions air guns in the last story. Uh, Moran is basically, he's basically Moriarty. I was trying to remember the, um, the relationship between, uh, Moriarty and Moran. Uh, it has to be an interesting story there because they're both so absolutely batshit. But, (laughs) so Moran is basically Moriarty's hired gun. He was, he was a general in, um, they, they, they mentioned this later, but I'll just bring it up now because he's here in the story. Uh, he, he was basically, uh, he was part of, I'm saying basically so many times, I'm so sorry. Um, It's all good, dude. Uh, he was, he was part of, um, Her Majesty's Indian Army. Her Majesty's Indian Army. There we go. And he served several years. He was, uh, he was a soldier. And all- which, which, by the way, we we should clarify, does not mean the army of India. That means the British army, as positioned in India, to oppress and yes, and yes. violently Let, put down. Definitely make the that natives who very were clear. Invaded. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> he was not the good guy no, in that scenario. Absolutely not. Um, the Britain showed up in India and was like, "So this is ours now." <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Eddie Eddie Izzard does a great bit where he talks about after the events of World War II when the British Empire, as it was known, had fallen, that you know the world maps were being redrawn, that Israel was being created as a place in the Middle East, and that while everyone was there at the at the Globe, they turned and they said, "Britain, what, what have you got behind your back? Oh, it's India and a number of other countries." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. So, so he was, he was out there doing that and also at the same time became renowned as like a really just excellent mark, marksman and tiger oh, hunter yeah. specifically. Specifically he, a tiger fucker. Yeah, he has yeah. such good, um, he's so good with guns. He's just killed so many tigers and that's his whole thing. So now he's trying to kill Sherlock Holmes and yep. uh, the parallels are exact. So Holmes. Oh yeah, no, I would get. Okay, yeah. so Holmes points out. Yeah. Holmes points out. You, 
You're Colonel Sebastian Moran. You wrote several famous treatises on how to hunt for tigers, how you lie in wait, and how you have several backup guns in case your primary <laughs> gun doesn't work. These cops are like my backup guns. And he does say, the parallel is exact. He says those words out loud mm. as if a person just stood there and said, this is a very good metaphor. <laughs> he's, just, he's so pleased with himself. I thought this through so hard. This is so, it's so perfect. It's like, you're the tiger. God. I'm the tiger hunter. It's all, it's all just, yep. and it's so funny too because Moran has to, Moran's just, okay, so they pound, Moran takes the shot. He thinks he's killed Sherlock Holmes right at the uh-huh. moment he takes the shot. Um, Correct. Home. And it turns out, Nicholas, yeah. Nicholas, how do you catch a sniper? Same way you catch a fish. Tackle! Yeah, Th- yeah, there you go. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> that was good. I really want to know how long it took you to think that one up. Probably seconds. Because it's <laughs> it was you. yesterday at work. <laughs> I was very happy with myself, thank you. Okay, so here's the thing. That was good, here's the yeah. Thing. I, t- I take my notes on paper while I'm reading at work, and then I type them up while I'm at work, and I email them to myself. <laughs> Much like Holmes explaining why his metaphor is so good, Casey is about to explain to us why his joke is so good. Go on. No, here's <laughs> the thing. It's not about the joke. So I sent myself my notes in an email from my work email to my personal email, mm. and it didn't show up. And I spent a solid half hour convinced that I had just sent my profanity-laced Sherlock Holmes podcast notes to someone else in my oh, company. No. <laughs> You just couldn't find it, or? No, it was in my junk. Oh, okay. Mail. Okay. Yeah. It went to it's the so right that... place. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. No, that was wonderful. Commit, Nicholas. Oh, uh, yeah. So... Oh, good. The parallel is exact. So, yeah. Holmes toots a wee whistle that he has been concealing upon his person, and Lestrade comes a running, and they apprehend, and they take a quick look at their sniper man, giving Arthur Conan Doyle yet another chance to describe yet another extremely handsome man in a very sensual and affectionate fashion. Yeah, yeah, he's, like, describing his jaw as looking a certain way, and it's like, all right, damn. so... This, this, this was actually, so real quick, I'm just gonna tell how the fight went down, cause it's actually kinda cool. Um, Go so, for it. so Moran takes the shot, right after that, Holmes pounces on him, and starts to like, kinda get thrown around a bit, and he, he basically, they didn't, he didn't even discuss this with Watson, which I think is kinda ah. cool, like, also implying that perhaps they've done something like this before. Uh, Holmes pounces on Moran, and then- You mean the two of them tackling a man together? Right. <laughs> Wink, wink. So, um... <laughs> yes, Nicholas, so wink, wink, as, thank you. <laughs> so as... I I have to work really hard to catch innuendos. Like, sarcasm already is hard for me, but innuendos are like, wait, That's okay. Fair. So, so yeah, Holmes... Holmes <laughs> this, this whole fight scene takes three seconds, and it's taking us yep. 15 minutes to describe it. Holmes attacks, Holmes attacks Moran. While he's, while Moran is distracted, Watson comes up behind him and clocks him on the top of the head with the bat, with the butt of his pistol. Sick as hell. Moran yep. goes down. They got him. Yeah, Holmes tweets Sack the, potatoes. Holmes tweets the whistle. Lestrade and some other dude comes, some other constable comes running up and, uh, they, they slap the cuffs on him. And Holmes takes this moment to illustrate verbally out loud to everyone in the room, uh, <laughs> how excellent his, you are the his tiger, tiger hunting metaphor. This scene, Sir, this scene is, I don't think you understand. Very on It brand is you who are the striking. With uh, this is a very Holmes and Watson the movie scene right here, like yeah. <laughs> uh, driving home, and and Hol- and, Mor- and Moran's in like handcuffs this whole time, just being forced to listen to Holmes get Moran this cuffs. whole. It's great. Um, yeah, where was I gonna? What was I gonna do? What was I gonna say after that? Um, mm-hmm. 
I was gonna. I got so wrapped up in the in the fight scene. Oh well, doesn't matter. So right. so yeah, the um tiger hunter. Oh yeah, um. So so Doyle goes into extreme detail describing Moran because he's a pretty important character. He through, he's a pretty he's pretty slash he, important character. There you go. Um, he is described as being a okay. He was an elderly man and with a thin projecting nose, a high bald forehead, and a huge grizzled mustache. An opera hat was pu- pushed to the back of his head, and an evening dress shirt front gleamed out through his open overcoat. His face was gaunt and swarthy, scored with deep savage lines. In his hand, he carried what appeared to be a stick, but as he laid it down on the floor, it gave a metallic clang. Okay, that's the gun. And he goes on to describe the air gun because I think at the time this was like peak technology like right. top gun this technology sci-fi stuff right yeah, yeah to, to victorian england um so so yeah he gets a really good description it was a tremendously virile yet sinister face which turned towards us with the brow of a philosopher above and the jaw of a sensualist below the man must have started with great capacities for good or for evil but one could not mm-hmm. one could not look upon his cruel blue eyes with their drooping cynical lids or upon the fierce aggressive nose and the threatening deep-lined brow without reading nature's plainest danger signals and that's like a thing that kind of comes up in quite a few of the stories where he describes the way someone looks as if it affects how their nature is going to be and that's a very yeah. i think that's a very victorian thing specifically and before where they were kind of like there was this whole branch of like pseudoscience where they looked they were like okay if a person has these features it means that oh, they're yeah. this smart and oh phrenology yeah phrenology yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what Absolutely. it was yeah and i think at the beginning of the hound of the baskervilles uh there's a character who is a phrenologist and he when he's meeting Holmes he is like can I take a bust of your skull because he's trying to like figure out how he's like no need at all I'll just introduce you to my bust guy right (laughs) Um, I don't know I just think that's that's kind of interesting. And Doyle does that. He must have gone in with that as a it's interesting seeing it translate to like a fictional storytelling perspective because it was just right. kind of it must have just been really widely accepted that if someone had this certain feature oh yeah that they it were was, if they it had was a, believed and yeah. it was understood that any any moral or spiritual defect uh would have a physical manifestation mm-hmm. uh not not necessarily i mean usually in in ugliness or in yeah. deformity or or in similar but <laughs> race um, for one well it's <laughs> <laughs> what's what's interesting is that Doyle does that consistently mm-hmm. and you know sort of ableistly yeah. but his the, the characters he describes as as deformed or disabled or or anything you know we would recognize as ableist slurs today uh they're not usually the evil ones they're usually cast as like these sort of unfortunates or mm-hmm. you know miserable wretch types right. and he does he does consistently paint like truly evil like bad guys as being like really handsome bad boys yeah. <laughs> and it's like it's like you know you shouldn't hang out with this guy but he's he's so he wants to go down the malt shop <laughs> <Right>. and <laughs> you shouldn't hang out with this rude. guy but you might want to just be careful exactly yeah. we all hunt a tiger together yeah uh, it's just interesting and i think Maybe subconsciously, it might be a reflection on, like, because he talks about potential with this guy specifically, that this guy could have been either ultimate good or ultimate bad, mm-hmm. um, that he had potential either way. And I, I think maybe it's a commentary, probably not a conscious one, right. but it could be seen as a commentary on the way that, like, badness or evilness or, or whatever you want to call it, it usually just boils down to selfishness mm-hmm. um, rather than any moral imperative. It's it's willingness to put your own needs and desires above those of other people, even if violence is required. Yeah. That, that is 
on a base animal level, that is sort of an attractive concept. Mm -hmm. We have all, at one time or another, you know, entertained the idea of just saying, fuck it, I have tried to be too nice and too accommodating for too long, and it has gotten me... <laughs> Are you tired of being nothing... nice? Don't you ever just want to go ape shit? <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yes, and it has, it, has gotten, it has gotten us nothing resembling worthwhile returns on our investments. Right. And, uh, you know, we, I think we have all entertained a life of crime um, at, at one point or another mm. with varying degrees of seriousness. Um, Including Sherlock Holmes, and, which Doyle goes out oh, of yeah. his way to mention Holmes multiple times. Hey, I would have made a great burglar. I would have made a great exactly. this. And it's true. And um, it, it's like Doyle takes – he kind of takes the position of like self selflessness is good, uh, right. i.e. Holmes sacrificing his health, sacrifice or donate donating, uh, using all of his energy towards protecting London when he could easily right. just be making a ton of money and like – Whatever. He's, yeah. he's purely for the intellectual pursuit. Um, but, and then there's Moriarty too, who is also extremely intellectual, but one degree to the left, where he's, right. there's the murder element there, where as Holmes, as much as possible, wants to avoid people getting murdered, and Moriarty's, like, that's, that's his goal. And it's, yeah. You get to see a lot of variety in the, in the morality of the characters in these stories. You do. Yeah. There's, um, there's a Russian, fantasy series that i quite enjoy uh called night watch mm -hmm. um by sergey lukianenko and the the central premise is that there are there are people called others and every folk that you know it's it's an all myths are true kind of thing mm. um but every every creature your witches and your vampires and all all manner of boogan are all called others and there are light others and dark others and they go to great pains to explain that that divide is very real and very meaningful, but that dark does not necessarily mean evil, and that light does not necessarily mean good, that they usually fall more along lines of selfish or unselfish, and that, like, a a wizard of the light school could just as easily cast a curse, and, uh, you know, like a dark witch can easily heal someone she cares about. And so... Okay, that's interesting. I, I, we, we've, it is. It's a really good series, and yeah. I like it a lot. Um, The... I, I think the morality of crime is something we've talked about a lot and how rich crime is different from poor crime. Yeah. And crime crime because you're forced into a corner and because legitimate work is an untenable position for you or the economic system in place mm -hmm. uh, prevents it or uh, because people are somehow defending stop and frisk on Twitter. Um, <laughs> that's different than what Moriarty's doing, right. which is to for the fun of it, mm -hmm. essentially, as a mental, as an intellectual exercise to create the most efficient and brutal uh, crime system possible. Yeah. Because that's what he's doing. He doesn't need the money. He's not doing anything with it. Right. No, absolutely. Just, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> just doing crime. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. And honestly, that's and that's kind of how Moran is portrayed, except instead of instead of uh, crime in the collection of great amounts of wealth for no reason he just does murders that's what he does he just that likes shooting his... stuff he just likes killing yeah. things basically um, that is his mechanism yeah i think it's kind of to put it extremely simply uh do it the the whole good versus evil in at least in the sherlock holmes canon it's like are are everyone has their own abilities are you using them to help people or are you using them to hurt people right and well sort of it, there's, that's sort an of, element and like of it, the, yeah. 
And there's a, well, there's a famous, almost certainly not literally true, an apocryphal story mm-hmm. about Abraham Lincoln that he was driving in a carriage on the way to some speech or other, and he heard a terrible squealing sound. He had the driver pull over, and it turned out that it was a mother pig who was stuck in some deep, deep sticky mud, <laughs> and that her piglets were there going, wee wee, someone please help our mother. So Abraham Lincoln, who was a giant, yeah. uh, he lifted the pig, out of the mud and helped her on, which is not, it's not, that's not the part that strains belief. He was a wrestler. He would literally pick up people up and throw them out of the Oh, seriously? I thought he was just tall. Yes! <laughs> there, no, he, I mean, he did, um, anyway, he was a very strong man. And he did so, and he gets back in the cab and off he goes, and the cabman says, whoa, what an act of selflessness that was, uh, President Lincoln. And Abraham Lincoln says, selflessness? No, not at all. If I hadn't done that, then I, I wouldn't have been able to sleep tonight for, for, you know, I would hear that squealing in my ears. I was, it was purely for my own benefit. And so like the question, like the morality of altruism and whether altruism is truly possible, like in its purest state. Yeah. Cause like if you, if you know a thing is a goodness and you do it even without hope of reward or hope of anyone knowing you did it, like, does knowing that it's the right thing to do still count as a reward and incentive? Like, does that take some of the merit off of doing the right thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's like, it's the whole, like, if you do something good, but it's to make yourself feel good, is that still a good right. thing, or is it... Does that take away good place yeah, points? Yeah, yeah. It's extremely... And you get a lot of the gray morality stuff too in like in shows like Deep Space Nine and even here on in uh, some of the stories where someone is technically committing a crime but they're doing yeah. it in order to help the whole Jean Valjean issue where like Correct. if you steal but it's to save people from starving is it really bad you know and right. yeah there's there's that too it's, it's and cool. there's the, the Jean-Claude Valjean uh, situation <laughs> where he's beating up the people who try to Stop him from stealing bread. I realized halfway through that joke that I don't actually know anything about Jean-Claude Van Damme. <laughs> I don't even know who that I is. Couldn't <laughs> successfully construct the joke. He was a, he was, he was a, a Danish martial arts star from the 80s. Oh, all right. Uh, he's a contemporary of, of Stallone and similar. Oh, cool. Well, back in the story, um, they take a look. Uh, Moran is all cuffed and he's being toted away and Holmes is, is just poking fun at him, just saying, the whole time, yeah, because he's being dragged I'm away. You. I got you! <laughs> and he says, he turns to Lestrade and says, you may or may not have just cause for arresting me, but at least there can be no reason why I should submit to the jibes of this person. <laughs> if I am in the hands of the law, let things be done in a legal way. Just say, can you tell him to shut up? Where, Do you mind? Like, Moran's <laughs> literally just like, can you just drag me off already? Can I just yeah, finish real? being arrested so I can stop listening can I to this? Can please go to jail? <laughs> well, and there's another thing I love, which is where criminals like rely upon the law even though they don't respect it it's like hey aren't you supposed to be the good guys right <laughs> don't i have rights or some shit Can you arrest me faster <laughs> exactly yeah i believe i'm entitled to due process sir even right. though the man i killed also was <laughs> yeah and and uh also uh so so they they are arresting more yeah so so he says that and then the straight's like yeah all right you're right is there anything else yeah, you want to say is there anything else you want to say mr hope like he gives him more opportunity and Holmes is like actually there is like just working with and also Lestrade I don't think even knows who they're arresting um oh no no yeah more he just knows Holmes told him to be here and arrest him so Lestrade's like all right I guess I'm doing this uh so yeah they they got him in handcuffs by smart fraud I not sorted and Lestrade's like go down to Pinkberry so Mr. Holmes who have we just arrested and Holmes is like oh yeah let me introduce you 
and uh I'm taking you all out for ramen. And then uh, uh after Going down to uh, the Mongolian beef. And obviously after 3 years uh of not being able to drag Lestrade in front of criminals and other cops, uh Holmes uh gets his chance for he it's really good. Uh hold on, I'm going to find it. Uh, that illustrated, said Holmes. Yes, Mr. Holmes, I took the job myself. It's good to see you back in London, sir. Holmes, I think you, I think you want a little unofficial help. Three undetected murders in one year won't do, Lestrade, but you handled the mostly mystery with less than your usual, that is to say, you handled it fairly well. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> immediately, buddy. as soon as he gets back, Lestrade's just like, dude, I'm just happy to see you. You can. <laughs> the dragging begins immediately. Right. And like a couple sentences later, Lestrade is like, well, now this crimesman, he'll see what happens when you try to murder Sherlock Holmes. And Holmes is like, uh, actually, hi. Uh, no, I was not involved. I was not here. Mm. It was all you, Lestrade. Quote, with your usual mix of cunning and audacity, you have got him. <laughs> what, dude? Oh! <laughs> yep. <laughs> Just immediately it's gives him, like, all right, here you go. Here's good. the credit. Just like old times. Yep. So <laughs> they return to Baker Street to find Hudders alive and well and famous director Ballistic Gel Torso, who is there <laughs> uh, with a bullet wound through his head <laughs> and the soft revolver bullet that had ventilated the ladder, which is all expanded and mushroomed for the air gun that Moran had been using, which Holmes recognized as being made for Moriarty by a blind German mechanic, which is a story that I, Casey, would be very interested right? in hearing. <laughs> yep. Is apparently uh, designed to fire revolver bullets, which is very odd. So Holmes takes a look at the damage this thing has done and says, Whoa! Yeah! That would have killed me, but good! <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, so yeah, now they know how the other dude died and they know who did it. Um. Yep. So... Well, and the thing that gets me, they read his bio, which notes that he is a member of the same card clubs as Adair, and uh, Holmes calls him the second most dangerous man in in London, and he was the reason that Holmes has been away for like three years. He couldn't come back to London knowing that this guy was still out there. Yeah, and Moran is just says, that dangerous. Exactly. And he says to Watson, well, I couldn't just shoot him, because then I'd go to jail. <laughs> wonderfully pragmatic because yeah. Holmes considered it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I could just kill him. <laughs> but second of all, Holmes didn't, he, he just, like he could have thought of something else. Like Holmes has to know a million ways to kill dudes, right? Right. He <laughs> could just, have done it. He could have easily killed him and framed him, but just yeah. decides not to. I mean, I would have read that story. I, I mean, he's a criminal technically, so. Right. But yeah. So, Holmes uh, says that he must have killed Adair because they were cardsmen together, and Adair caught him cheating at cards and threatened to expose him, uh, Moran, if he did not resign the club and all clubs, and that this, you know, card sharping was really his only means of support, and that therefore, from a criminal murder man's perspective... Uh, murder was the only option <laughs> left to him, really. And Holmes says the most baffling thing in the entire story to me, the bit that I could not believe I read with my own two eyes. <laughs> he says, he says that they chose this spot, Holmes chose this spot to wait for Moran for its view, like across from, from Baker Street. He says, no, I just thought it would have had a good view. I had no idea Moran was gonna choose this spot. <laughs> right? Like he literally, he literally thought, he says that he thought that Moran would probably be on the sidewalk. And point the gun, and I'm like, okay, I, right? Like he's he's just gonna pull a gun out in the middle of a street, and like I don't know, I 
I think it would make more sense that he would be concealed somewhere. It really would. Yeah, I don't know. That that Yeah, that was did, a bit of a stretch for not, me too. No. Uh but there was uh there was a really sweet bit where they realized that Adair, because he was he was partners with with um with Moran, card partners. Mm-hmm. And once he realized that like his winnings were ill gotten, the number because they found him dead with like a pile of cash on the table, which was odd, because why would a murder man kill him and not steal the monies? And also right. and a, a bunch of, of notes of, like he was trying to yeah. Figure out some some monies, and apparently he was trying to figure out how much of his money he should return because oh. it was ill-gotten. <laughs> the He's most just, innocent guy ever. It was so sweet, and I really like the idea of a lawful good gambler. Like I like the idea of like some gambler who rolls into town and he takes all the card sharps for all they're worth and he's like, now that I've cleaned you boys out, I'm going to pay 10% on my taxes as is the law in this territory. (laughs) It's just, I don't know. It makes me very happy. I like it a lot. Yeah. So, and, uh, that's, that's about it. RSVP that guy. I I would give him the, I would give him the, uh, we haven't really done a, um, what is it? The, uh, Huxable Huxable Award. Yeah. I think this guy definitely yeah. earns it for this one. Uh, yeah, it's, it's our. I, I think so. We'll get it. We'll get a double dose of Huxtable, a two-stable. Posthumous. Um, he he deserves it, yeah. Mister you know, Captain Adair, whatever your rank was. <laughs> you uh, you were too good for this world, and certainly too good for those gambling clubs. Your virtue was your downfall, and for that we salute you. <laughs> and so the story ends with a little quote here that once again, Mister Sherlock Holmes is free to devote his life. To examining those interesting little problems which the complex life of London so plentifully presents. Sherlock Holmes is back, baby. Yep. Boys are back in yeah. town. It was a really good story. Yep. I liked it a lot. I liked it a lot better than the final problem. It did a lot of things very tidily, bringing Holmes back, explaining how he's back in the first place, getting yeah. rid of Watson's wife so Watson can immediately move back into Baker Street and we can go back to... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's almost fridging, except it wasn't even done for emotional manipulation. Like it was, it was just done con- for convenience. It's like, does that does yeah, that count? I don't know. That's not cool. It's, and I didn't yeah. know she died. Did it? Did it say she died? Okay, so there's a note. It's really like a. Let me see. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's straight up just not even really mentioned. You have to like, okay. you have to just kind of know. So it's meant. I so it's at the scene where um Holmes has revealed himself, and he's saying, "So it was, my dear Watson, that at two o'clock today I found myself in my old armchair in my old room, and only wishing that I could have seen my old friend Watson in the other chair, which he has so often adorned." Which is a cute quote, first of all. Secondly, it is. right after that, um, there's a uh one line where Watson is narrating, "In some manner, he had learned of my own sad bereavement." And his sympathy was shown in his manner rather than his words. Work is the best oh. antidote for sorrow. Work is the best antidote for sorrow. And my edition, probably not yours, but um, has a no, little has a little note, a uh, little uh, asterisk there, and it's uh, his own sad bereavement is the death of Mary Morrison, his wife. Oh, uh, I see. And I it, thought his bereavement was for Holmes. No, oh, okay. It doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't say. It's very. It's extremely easy to miss, which is why I didn't blame you at all. But uh, it 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 never even says how she died or anything i don't think it might maybe in another story it 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 might but i don't remember well, she, she's a victorian woman i think <laughs> you can safely assume that she was mildly surprised by something or that a right. a breeze of slightly stronger than average strength knocked her over and she just never got back up yeah and it's uh and it's interesting to see what uh different adaptations do with that 
total yeah. vagueness. Uh, they're kind of just, it's kind of just up to whoever wants to adapt it. Do you want to well, include Mary in the first place? How do you want right. her to die? You know, et cetera. Cause this whole thing is essentially a soft reboot, right? Yeah, basically. It's, it's just wiping the slate clean. It's the, the ninth the doctor kind of. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> of Sherlock, yeah, which oh, yeah. I just realized. Yeah. Well, yeah. Good story. Um, mm-hmm. Adair gets, gets our Huxtables. It was a lot of fun. We're glad Holmes is back, obviously. I'm glad we read all these stories in a row. Um, yeah, it would have been really, I, I kind of, I wanted to insist that we read. Yeah, yeah. it would have been really, yeah. So, it's good. Okay. Well, I'm going to open up the cannon here. I'm going to roll my D10s. Let's see here. All right. That's, that's, okay, wait, that's 90. That's it there. I'm not good at D10s. Nobody's good at D10s. (laughs) That's all right. Um, I'll believe you. The worst Dungeons and Dragons related argument I have ever had in my life was about D10s, and I'm still afraid of them a little bit to this day. (laughs) So, okay, that came up 63. That's too many. 63 by half is, what, 31 rounded down. So number 31 on our list is Lady Frances Carfax from 1911. Do you know this one? Uh. Yes, I do vaguely remember it. It's uh it's pretty good. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I yeah. Well, all right. Everybody go ahead it and read It might Lady be Francis. racist, but Oh no. <laughs> it might be I, racist in, is my least like favorite. Not... They might be giants cover band from the Victorian <laughs> not in, era. Not in like a it ruins the whole story thing, but just like okay. stereotypes, you know. All right. Well, well go ahead those. and read that. Yeah. Go ahead and read that with uh with a word of warning ahead of time yeah. for your homes work for next week. Uh, if you'd like to, you can find us on Twitter at the Final Podblum. We would love to hear from you. You can go ahead and listen to the Watsonian Weekly. Oh, uh, on a somber note, uh, this week we mourn the loss of Good Game, Great Game, who for press F. um uh, a host of uh, they'll appreciate that. Thank you uh, for <laughs> a host a host of various uh, life reasons have decided uh, that their project has sort of naturally run its course. And mm-hmm. that, uh, they're not interested in forcing it to continue past its natural lifespan. Which is, that's the way to do Valid. it, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. You don't want to just... We don't, we wouldn't want it to be a burden on them or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're still gonna maybe pursue other projects in the future. Maybe with a couple of hosts you know and love. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Anyway. Uh, but you can still absolutely go listen to their backlog, which is going to stay up for the foreseeable future. Good game, great game. They are great friends of the show. They are hilarious and deeply insightful dudes who have things to say about video games that you need to hear. So I go definitely plan on catching up on that. Uh, yeah. When also, I have, yeah. go listen. Go listen to Omnibus with uh, Ken Jennings and John Roderick, where I today learned about uh, the secret gay couple that were almost president and vice president of the United States in the 1800s. Yeah. What the heck? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You're gonna have to go listen to find out. I'll send you a link. I'll send All you a right, link. Cool. It's a really yes. good episode. Yes, do please. All right. So, yeah, you can find us on Twitter. You can please at us. We would love to hear from you. Uh, if you should like to, you can go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash semi-automagic, which is our podcast network. And if you should care to fling us five bucks a month, a small crab will come and take it from your wallet when you're not looking. You can have access uh, to these episodes most of a week early, and you can have the exclusive pre-shows where we goof around before we start recording. And... Uh, you can have some bonus materials that we aren't quite ready to expose to the world at large yet, but uh, that we've got in the works and we think you might enjoy, so you can go check those out. Mm-hmm. And until then, all our buddies, snipe on, snipe off. <laughs>
Wait, no, it's wax on, wax, it's not wipe on, wipe off. I've never seen the Karate Kid. Casey! <laughs> it's a classic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Bye, everybody's. we love you! <laughs> It's Nicholas. So, because this story mentions tigers so much, and because my partner Vaughn knows so much about animals, I thought I'd get his take on how man-eating tigers actually are, and just a bunch of general information about the animals as relevant to the particular time period that this story takes place. He also wanted me to let you all know that if you want to help these beautiful animals, you can go to SaveTigersNow.org. That's SaveTigersNow.org, just spelled out. Uh, They're part of the WWF World Wildlife Fund, and you can donate some money to their cause if you want to. Um, Their goal is to double the amount of tigers by 2022, which is going to be the year of the tiger. Uh, So that's pretty cool. Uh, So with that said, here's the final problem. Special guest Vaughn with all your tiger-related needs. Okay, Vaughn, tell us about tigers. Tell us what you know about tigers. How man-eating are they? Is that true or a myth? And just just give us a quick... Yes. It's absolutely true that tigers will eat people because they're people. I mean, Mm -hmm. I could... I'm a tiger. I could kill 500 birds to get my daily caloric intake. Or I can kill some British dude over in the fucking corner. Yeah. And I can make a living off of it because they had to go out and get supplies. It's British India. Mm -hmm. It's colonialism there. Because that's the Victorian area. Yeah. That's what they did. The the Brits just came over and was like, this is ours now. But they (laughs) forgot that this included tigers. (laughs) (laughs) So while they were going about doing their things, most Indians were like, we know how to avoid tigers. The Brits, stupid. Never (laughs) seen a tiger in their life. There's no big cats as far as I... But they had guns. They did have guns. So... But tigers have the ultimate disguise. You can't fucking see them. Mm Mm-hmm. Humans are big and blunderous and stupid, especially if they're British. Right. (laughs) Disclaimer to all the British people. Yeah. (laughs) So, it was actually quite common with, during British occupation, 30,000 people just fucking dying because they were tasty. (laughs) And so the whole thing with... uh... Big game hunters getting all these tiger ru- tiger skin rugs and catching a bunch of it, it honestly wasn't that impressive because they just had the weapons and well well I mean it was a sport and they were also kind of stupid because they would just kill the tiger and be like ooh look I have this skin while you know people were actually using it for tradi- using tiger parts for traditional medicine specifically tiger balls love it really um yeah they used lots of parts of the tiger for chinese medicine oh, so got it. you had people importing it illegal like at that point i don't think it was illegal it's illegal now to poach tigers for chinese medicine right but back then they were just fucking doing it mm-hmm. and then you had white people just coming in shooting the tigers because they're trying to build cities but there's tigers living there, and you can't build a city with a tiger right there. Yeah. So you have to get rid of the tiger somehow. Mm-hmm. So that caused competition between humans and tigers, and tigers weren't going to be like Tasmanian tigers and just lay over and die. They're, they're not going to just, oh, well, fuck, I have to leave now. And they're, they're going to be like coyotes. Coyotes live in our cities. Raccoons live in our cities. 
They're pe- like, let's make this work. Peregrine falcons are pests now in New York. <laughs> <laughs> and they're straight up falcons. They're the fastest falcon ever. And they're just pests. We just kept because building they and adapted. building. And... and tigers adapted and figured out. We go get water at night. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so, in India, they have, like, all these rules about, like, you need to be careful where you go because tigers will just attack. Now we killed all the tigers. They don't have to worry so much about it. Mm. But, and Bengal tigers aren't even the biggest tigers. So, I don't even know why the Brits were complaining. They weren't Siberian tigers. <laughs> Grow up. <laughs> Grow a beard and move to Siberia. Like How, how are tigers doing now? Are they, are they making a comeback They all? are making a comeback because of all of the, you know conservation it's doing good but definitely not pre-colonial mm-hmm. numbers yeah not no of course yeah. after you know poaching illegal trade and all that stuff we just destroyed their populations mm-hmm. but both siberian and in fact india's doing the best they like completely doubled their numbers i think within the span of 10 nice. years on their tigers so india without the british are actually kind of <laughs> Doing things, so the so we act, they act like the tigers are the pest, but really it's British people who are the pest. <laughs> They've been the pest. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> They've been the pest, Nick. 